This is In Between Stations Radio. Uh, this next broadcast I was going to do in four parts, which would have been 30 minutes apiece. This is really the longest broadcast I've, I've put up anyway. I've done live broadcasts a little longer, and this was done live. Uh, so, um, so it involves uh, 30 years to get to this point, going to school and trying to articulate this uh, pinnacle event that happened to me 30 years ago in the Great Salt Lake Desert. It's, in, it's, it's a challenge to do such a thing when you have an experience that some term mystical... Um, it's a difficult process sometimes because it's largely nonverbal to articulate that, the feeling of it. And that's the challenge of this. And so I go back 30 years and I lay out a history and try to give it, uh, set a baseline that, that makes it understandable and, and, and enjoyable and to have fun with this. And my suggestion is to listen to it in, in segments. Um, if you don't have two hours to sit down, it'd be nice if you did. I think it'll capture you in such a way that, um, you won't have any problem um, listening to it. And so I invite you to um, to take this in and see where where it puts you, especially in this critical time period right now where, where we're all thinking about things and change of things and the drastic measure in which things seem to be going in. And um, to take a look at something in terms of the personal, and I hope, the collective too so this is not just my experience but I can hand it to you and say hey this is this is what happened to me it can or maybe it's already happened to you and to expand out into our in our into the present and into the future and hopefully to to make our world a little bit of a better place to live and to understand that it's very deep and it's very beyond us sometimes what's out there and so M- mainly have fun with this and enjoy it and uh, uh, thank you for tuning in to In Between Stations. So uh, here we go. Blood Red Moons of August. That's what I kind of used to call it. This amazing experience that I had, oh, 30 years ago or so. You have the Wasatch Front there in northern Utah, which encompasses uh, Brigham City at its far north end, and then smaller town of Nephi at the southern end and then in between this is Salt Lake and Orm and Provo and in between that some uh, land masses and things like that but it's grown substantially over the years and um, has become getting to be uh, almost one big urban city and out there to the west where you can see the Great Salt Lake which fluctuates in levels over the years from a huge lake to a very small one um, and some most of the time in the middle and beyond that is the uh, what's called 
by locals the West Desert, uh, and referred to in uh, official terms as the Great Salt Lake Desert. This is a, a fantastic place. Before I move into the rest of my story, I'd just like to lay out the, the groundwork here of, of this place because this is where I'm going to go out to and where I went out to for um, many years when I lived there in Salt Lake. This valley, as others in this what's called basin and range, um, where you have these very high mountains and then in between you have these huge like sagebrush oceans in between each uh, mountain range. And so that's called mountain and range or basin and range. And then you have these larger basins where these uh, Pleistocene lakes set at one time, these huge lakes, uh, the size of the Great Lakes uh, in the Midwest. Um, these were quite large. And this was a, a cooler time period um, towards the end of the Ice Age. The Pleistocene, and uh, having a lot more rain and uh, cloud cover and snow, and we're the glaciers aren't reaching down this far, but they're up there and they're affecting the weather. These big, huge ice caps. So the the climate's much cooler, and you're getting a lot more rain. Uh, that region is fairly dry. Um, you don't get a lot of moisture there anymore. Uh, in fact, I think Utah is one of the driest states uh, in the Union. And, um, but in this time period, there was a lot of rain. And so you had this huge, expansive, deep freshwater lake that sat there, fluctuating in levels more or less for 30,000 years. But it got to be quite extensive, about the size of Lake Michigan. So um, pretty big. There is a, a natural reservoir up in the uh, northern part of where the lake extended up into Idaho. It begins to cut down through this, this natural uh, dam or reservoir rock over the years. There's a series of what they talk about now as massive earthquakes. Or there's a lot of speculation that seems to be true that caused uh, the lake to move and shift. And this and then this breach of this natural um, dam where lots, you know, millions of gallons of water started pouring out of this lake. So it took a long time to drain. And uh, there's a, these successive levels you can see, even in the Wasatch Front where uh, Lake Bonneville used to set and as it slowly drained and then it would, you know, get, get into stasis or balance and then it wouldn't drain as much for a long time and they have these levels like called the Stansberry Provo. I can't remember all the um, the names and the more prominent levels um, you get um, these little caves and um, there's there's many of them uh, and several are known. When the lake gets to its lower levels then um, you start seeing human occupation, Paleo Indians coming into the to the valley and living there because the climate's not as cold. Probably about 10,000 years before present, uh, even as far back as 15,000 years, you have, you, there's a lot of archaeological evidence of, of what we call paleo and uh, later uh, bands of people moving in this area and living. And some of those are substantial uh, uh, 
some of the, a few of these caves have substantial stat stratigraphic layers that lay out um, intact the people as they live in these caves and then they move out for four or five hundred years and they move back in and um, I've been to some of those caves a, a lot of them are still not known or not excavated and I've been in those and they're they're absolutely fascinating I spent a lot of time going into those. Uh, archaeology was a field of study I had when I, at the University of Utah, one of the degrees I had. I was involved in the archaic and uh, paleo part of that for a while. Later on it became uh, just the southwestern uh, indigenous tribes early on that I specialized in. And so I had a lot of interest in this area and I would go out there uh, over over the years and, and study those things and um, it's a it's a fascinating place um, of course now I have questions about what supposedly is the first cultures the Clovis cultures there's some some evidence of that in, uh, in this place called uh, the Great Salt Lake Desert the West Desert um, so and, and that's really not what this this broadcast will be about but um, I, I and, and there are fossils of mastodons, uh, um, early Ice Age elephants. Mastodons are a little older, and uh, these 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 uh, megafauna, these these big big um, wild animals that were in this region and all over um, the Americas, depending on where the glacial you know levels were at. And those those are those are found uh, in the Great Salt Lake Desert. Uh, especially on the upper levels of of Lake Bonneville. And I, I feel strongly that there is pre-Clovis sites that haven't been found or actually looked at, that, that the date of human beings goes much further back uh, than, than 15,000 years. And so that was initially uh, my interest is, you know, how long had people been coming here? What did they leave behind? Which is substantial and um, what were they like. So uh, it's fascinating. Some of these caves, some that I've stood in, are, are substantial. That You have this what's called stratigraphic layers in the cave that are intact, very intact. And you can see, uh, you know, moccasins and, and pottery and, and, and uh, ash from fires, a lot of carbon on the, on the, on the ceilings of the caves. And it's, it's very, uh, it's very set, it's set very organized. When you look at it, you can actually see the soil. And in some places you can see the beach level of the lake, you know, where the lake actually came in the cave. And that's interesting. And then, so, it's pretty indisputed. I mean, the, the dating is questioned sometimes in the process, but um, it's it's amazing. And so this this place, and one of them is called Danger Cave, which is, you know, world famous, because this has started how, how do we date things. And, who was here a long time ago and so and there's other caves but that's one and I've stood in unnamed ones and some of these are probably not even known today just because they're so inaccessible and it's fascinating to to see the artifacts of these people and and these aren't just cavemen these are people with substantial knowledge about the environment and how to live and survive and uh, in my mind extremely spiritual people and uh, they have uh, a different view of the world back then. Uh, be before I move on with the archaeology, and I want to tie this into my modern day experience that I'll talk more about, uh, this fascinating experience that I had um, 
and like I said, I'd made several trips out there uh, over over the years. I think over about a 10-year time period, I'm going out there quite a bit when I'm both in the Army and out of the Army. Um, but one of the things that uh, is kind of in the gray area with archaeology, and, you know, there's a lot of things in the gray area with archaeology, with archaeology. It's not as an exact science as we would like to think it is. And especially lately, there's been a lot of, a lot of debate on dating and how, how far back we can go, which is, is being pushed back more and more, uh, every year as, as we find evidence and as we find flaws in different schools of thought that were largely dominated by this white outsider view of things. Uh, a lot of indigenous people have got into the field, and so they they look at things a little differently with less bias. Obviously, because it's their people and their families that they're you know that we're looking at. But one of the things that uh, is interesting is when you do find petroglyphs, which are fairly rare uh, in the northern Utah area. They're not as extensive like when you get down into central southern Utah, and especially down to. to uh, Arizona and Mexico and in Mexico itself you have a you have this thriving uh, uh, rock writing going on and in pottery and in cloth you have this this very uh, sophisticated and complex symbolism I mean it's up there uh, but it's not as prominent because these are these are uh, more or less wandering tribes uh, that become more substantial over the years as they migrate further south and obviously when it's cold like that that's what you're going to do because the growing climate's longer and you're going to become more agrarian as time goes on because you have a longer growing season down there it's warmer and so it's, it's taking a while for the glaciers way up north in canada and alaska and the arctic to, to to melt down they're substantial like the antarctica almost but one of the things that's looked at is you're in, in especially in texas uh parts of the Great Basin is you're finding um, you're finding different kinds of seeds and food that the people leave behind you know it's material evidence with with bone and, and tools artifacts you're finding uh, you're finding this plant called Doctura and uh, I don't want to go too much into this but this is one of the most powerful hallucinogenic plants in the world but it's very uh, chaotic and so there's a lot of things you have to, to use with it to be able to uh, work with it. And uh, that's obvious because when you get down in the Amazon basin, uh, and, uh, tribes today still use Doctura. They know what to, to use it with. It's even used in the ayahuasca ceremonies. But it's, it, it depends on what you use with this plant so it's, it's tolerable, so it isn't such an extreme experience. And I have direct experience with Doctura, so I know how, how powerful it is, one, and and uh, I know the real negative dark side of the plant too. Uh, it can cause it can cause amnesia and a breakup of your short and long-term memory, in addition to fantastic hallucinogenic states. And these paleo people and later Holocene tribes uh, know how to use it. It, it, I mean, when you start looking uh, into the sort of gray areas of the, the rock writings that you find in some of these caves and cliffs, there's, and, and then you look at uh, Central uh, America and Southern America, and there's a continuous, continuous occupation there. I mean, it stretches clear up into Northern America, uh, 
And I think a lot of, t and you know, we like to, archaeology likes to make a, a, a wall there, so to speak, and there actually is a wall there, between uh, Mesoamerica and the Southwest and then, you know, further north. But there, there, there's nothing like that. It's, it's a continuous history. And, um, and so looking at that, looking at uh, uh, codices and things like that, we know that these, uh, especially in later times, towards the, the Aztec Tekken Empire, uh, we know that these people use hallucinogenic substances in their ceremonies, like they did in the Amazon. Like ayahuasca and, like I said, Yopo and others um, were used for thousands of years. And these were to enhance these ceremonies, and they were disciplines. So we see strong evidence, well, I, I don't want to use the word strong, we see evidence uh, up, in, up in Utah and Nevada and Texas uh, of why, you know, there's Doctura seeds in, these, in some of these excavations. Uh, and, and why? What are they doing with it? And it's not a, a plant you kind of mess around with like, hey, you know, let's chew some gum and, uh, and let's, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's put some of this in our coffee. No, they don't, they don't have coffee then, but it's something, you know, it's a fairly serious deal. And, and so it looks like uh, that there, it's being used extensively. And, and now and there are sites where nowhere else in the entire region, except where this village is or this cave is, is this extensive amount of uh, Doctura. And so it's being used, and it, it induces these heavy hallucinogenic states. And I would like to say, having experience with other tribes further south, that these people knew how to use this, and it was used in a very sacred context, unlike smoking pot in the, in the parking lot or sitting back and you know watching some sci-fi movie while you're high. Wow, dude, this is amazing. Look at the flames coming out of that UFO. This is being used in a, a ceremonial context. And, lead, and what's left behind are these amazing uh, pictographs and petroglyphs uh, of these beings that are between animals and, and humans and other things. And as I've said before, you experience like beings when you're using these, these plant, these uh, powerful plant medicines. And so it makes sense when you look at the whole whole record stretching you know from southwest all the way down to the tip of South America um, these are they've been used over thousands of years and so they've been uh, specialized and you have this and I, what I'm trying to say here is I have a strong feeling these people were very advanced and they and they had this this communication with a multiplicity of consciousness and they're experiencing a life that's radically different from ours simply because they don't have the kind of technology we have. They don't have television. They don't have all these... They, they're seeing the stars. They're observing the, the cycles of the season. And they have to know these things to survive. And connected to that is this incredible experience that these ancient people are having. And, uh, and still have. You know, various places in Central America, uh, in South America, uh, some of the tribes in the Southwest with peyote and tobacco uh, and, and other things are still involved in these processes. And so what I feel and felt then is you have a very advanced people in, in certain ways, especially with this uh, dynamic of, of hallucinatory states of being, of, of dreamlike being, and in the ceremonial context, in a discipline uh, 
over thousands of years, you know, without the stoner high. And it may be gone, I, you just don't get a stoner high off some, on plants like Doctora. <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, and others. So, and, I, and that will lead into uh, to this next part where um, you, it's, it's, it's an experience that if you haven't had it, uh, you really don't have a lot of business criticizing because it's so profound and if you haven't had that experience and I no, listen I, and I've pointed out that you can fast and you can pray and there's other ways to get into this dynamic this this otherworldly state or place that's kind of the archaeology of it I mean lightly so um, as I've said I, I've been I've made a lot of trips out there over a 10-year time period but this one experience that I have in particular is what I want to what I want to talk about so um, or, or emphasize but first I need to lay out a few more things we kind of have the archaeology in there of the past and um, and then we have this me going out there and then we have this uh, I'm gonna have this experience and it ties into all this and I and I think somehow it connects to the ancient into the present tense and even maybe the futures as you'll see so as I've said I, I made several trips out there over the years uh, and this this one profound experience that I have had back then um, is I want to try the best I can to explain that so I'm kind of laying out a little bit of groundwork here that uh, lets you see it better so uh, it's not just I just sort of throw it at you let me um before i st start you know I, I one of these things i always say is don't criticize and look at something if you haven't had that experience and i've talked about uh in particular these experiences that i've had with this these profound hallucinogenic plant medicines used in the amazon uh ayahuasca which is two two plants uh and Yopo and uh, Virola, and as I've said, uh, Doctura. Uh, there, there, there are others, several others, but these four mainly. They've been used anciently and are profoundly powerful, um, mind-shattering uh, events that can happen to you, used in the ceremonial content or uh, context are even more profound because these people over thousands of years with use of these powerful plants have come up with uh, a, a, a discipline and I think what's happening nowadays as these become more popular is it, it often this these experiences are outside of the ceremonial context and there's less of a discipline and more of an experience and that, that's okay I mean, if that's how it comes to you, fine. But it also is can be sort of um, you got to be really careful with this stuff, um, and it's because because it can it can actually damage you if it's used wrong. And and so, at least for me and other friends that I have, you have to really do your research and make sure if, if it's something you decide that you that you find a legitimate place and person a shaman or someone to guide you through the process um, or if you decide not to do that then you should have some some discipline in there that helps 
you move to this very profound experience. Now this, you know, and you can have, and I think that's what I'm getting towards here, is you can have these sort of mind-altering experiences that, de- that can come through fasting and praying, uh, can come through dancing, can, long continuous ceremonies, um, car accidents. Um, uh, there's many extreme things that can break, uh, even a daydream can sometimes, or a simple event can sometimes expand your mind into these very profound experiences that go beyond the um, logic and rational into a whole different realm. Uh, something uh, like the modern day author, science fiction author that, you know, that uh, inspired Blade Runner uh, from his uh, novel, Do Electric Sheep Dream. Uh, Philip K. Dick, P.K. Dick, uh, had one of these experiences <laughs> sort of uh, just suddenly, you know, he he had two uh, impacted uh, molars that were removed and um, back then it wasn't the best process and they bled a lot and there's a lot of pain and so uh, he got uh, prescription medication for the pain and uh, his wife called up and had it delivered at the door because he, you know, P.K. Dick wasn't feeling very well, and this uh, woman comes to uh, the front door, this delivery person, this young woman, and she has the, uh, the, the Christian fish symbol on her, on, on a necklace she's wearing. And it just, it suddenly uh, just causes this tremendous opening up inside of his, his mind, this, this other state of being, this multiplicity of consciousness that he later names uh, Vallas. Uh, which is an acronym for this fantastic uh, godlike intelligence that's pervasive in the universe and then just opens up this whole other life with all these alternate versions of reality in it. And and he goes about explaining this. Uh, There's 8,000 pages in addition to all these fantastic novels he's written, which are coincidentally based on real experiences to some degree. But this exogenesis, which some of it's been published, he lays out in very detailed way uh, what happened to him. Was it, did he go insane? Did he go crazy? Was it a hallucinogenic experience? Uh, he, he, he looks at it in several different ways, and what he finally comes to the conclusion is, because several miraculous things happen, is that he's experienced alternate versions of reality, and that uh, in Christianity plays into that, and Rome plays into it, and Nazi Germany. Uh, so very interesting. But it, it just it happened by this experience where he opens the door up, and here's this woman, and this this ancient Christian fish symbol suddenly awakens his uh, a previous life up inside of himself, which involves all these very complex uh, alternate realities. And it, it's fantastic. Philip K. Dick's fantastic especially if you read his novels. And he, he, he says over and over um, that, um, and there's three uh, novels that are based kind of on personal experience that are really less novel and more real, um, where we have these uh, multiplicity of consciousness taking place, what I've talked about. And so it can happen in, 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 a, in a very regular way. It could be sitting at the bus stop and, and suddenly, uh, you know, there's a flash of light off somebody's belt buckle or... or or a carb windshield and it just activates this this deeper part of yourself the uh, 1620s uh, 
Protestant Christian mystic uh, um, Jakob Boehm, and he wrote thousands of pages of incredibly detailed visions that uh, was coincidentally uh, activated by this flash of, of light that uh, from a prism glass off, off a bowl, I think. This flash of light uh, set him into this kind of seizure-like experience where the, the, the heavens opened up and he's, and he's seen God. And it's very detailed and there's hundreds of people that uh, later on were involved with this. It's, it's, it's amazing stuff. Um, and there's just pages and pages of it. It's amazingly detailed. Um, so, um, and there's there's other experiences like this uh, that that weren't activated by plant medicines or hallucinogenic substances, but uh, just common everyday things. And then you get into accidents, as I've said, and you get into something some something that causes this expansion of mind and you can spend hours days years reading these various experiences and some are, are never sensationalized and other ones are turned into books of scripture and into entire religions but um it there's something happens to make uh, your everyday nine to five mind expand out and if you haven't had that experience it's hard to uh, relate this to you and uh, again I'm saying you really don't have a lot of room to criticize you know if you haven't haven't had that kind of thing happen to you and that's what this uh, the blood red moons of August I'm gonna try to cover in a short amount of time which is <laughs> not an easy task any and so my, my thing is if you haven't had one of those experiences then it's laughable then it's, it doesn't make sense. And let me explain why that might be shortly. Now, I, don't, I, I, I think one thing I want to make clear is I think it's important to have discipline, as I pointed out, and, and rules. But we tend to go on extremes and we have too much or too little. And so I can't sit here and say, hey, science is a bunch of crap, because it's not. Uh, it's it, it, it's a discipline, and, it, and it's brought us marvelous, incredible things. Uh, in, in you know, in terms of healing, and in terms of getting better, and being healthy, and having um, these conveniences that are that are amazing. And, and when you look at history, this is a pretty amazing thing. On the other hand, it can be the exact opposite. Science can create very dark and horrifying things simply because it can. That's something that Mary Shelley, the young Mary Shelley, I said she was 17 in my one of my last episode. She's actually 18. And she wrote um, Frankenstein. This is something that was contemplated by these intellectuals on Lake Geneva in 1816. Is what, when science was still fairly new, what can science do if it has no rules? If it just is allowed to go ahead and make these things that are shocking that have no morality to them they just make a machine or take two species of animals or take even a species of animals and combine it with human dna doing things simply because you can so science can have problems and anything in, in this extreme can be a problem i think there needs to be a balance in there i'm not against science modern science 400 years old is is fairly new and, and fairly in some ways fairly naive just for what I talked about you can do whatever you want to do without seeing the implications of something like an atomic bomb or a nuclear bomb 
um, later on down the road when you have uh, the enemy gets it, the enemy in parenthesis. So, um, but one of the things that science has based itself on is, is the physical element. Everything comes from physical observation of what's in front of you, what you see, material evidence, materialism. And there's, there's a reason for that. I mean, if you, somebody's going to make a bridge or design a car or do a, um, a heart operation on you or a brain surgery, you're, you're going to want to have a Zachness there, you know. Um, you're going to want to have somebody that's going to be successful at that operation, especially if it's serious with cancer or things like that. So there's a discipline involved in that. I understand that. But my, the point I'm going to make here is I think it goes too far especially in light of indigenous cultures that are thousands and thousands of years old, religions that emphasize the spiritual. And that's a word that's loaded. Um, in the spiritual uh, sense, or, or, or in the immaterial versus materialism, versus the physical uh, dynamic, versus uh, the esoteric, versus the things that you can't see or measure in the physical sense. So the immaterial. Sometimes I'll throw the quantum in there simply in the theory of chaos simply because they explore the gray areas of prediction. Things are not fully predictable in that element, such as the wave function and uh, unobserved little minuscule parts of, of, of an equation you don't understand or see. So there's a, there's a, a large unpredictability here, you know, especially with the wave function. It's one thing's here. You know, so instead of um, actually looking at the object itself, the photon, you look at what it does and the effect it has, but it's not fully predictable. So that's, that's uh, what you see a lot in the quantum and in the chaos theory. It, it kind of warps the Newtonian discipline where everything, the sun rises and sets, and you can mathematically work out... Uh, uh, and calculate processes in such a manner that you can plan them out. So chaos theory and um, the quantum kind of throw that into the gray area. But I think beyond that is this sort of spiritual immaterialism, essence, this unseen essence that can even be compared to the air we breathe. You can't see it, but it's critical. It's crucial. If you can't breathe, you, you die. Um, so the materialist, the, uh, and I and I, other people have used this. The, they're, reduc they're the reductionist, I call them, because they reduce everything to this very physical element of observation. And, and and in that, life is largely seen as an accident. In this great, incredible universe, li life is seen as this sort of bizarre accident that happened. And in that process. One of the problems that the materialist does have, you know, somebody that observes the physical, uh, physical uh, cause and effect is consciousness. Why, why are we conscious? Um, what is consciousness? What is um, this unseen state of being? What, <clears throat> what is emotional content? Science has a hard time measuring that in a quantitative way. Because it's, it's an effect that de, that's sort of very chaotic. That's sort of sometimes hard to understand. So if you, and you can look this up on the internet. Um, consciousness is a huge problem with the materialist view. 
and and I think we've been raised largely in modern times to see science as this sort of even though we're, we can watch movies and daydream and do art and have science fiction um, it all boils back down to you know the nine to five reality um, that you can um, that the sun's coming up and going down you have to work a job you have all these debts and you have these things you gotta you gotta pay off your mortgages uh, you have to work sometimes one two even three or four jobs to make ends meet I mean there's that's the world I mean if you don't have that you're gonna you're not gonna do well and so we have this very materialistic viewpoint and that brings up the brings up the other fact you can use the science to uh, to to move forward in your idea as a, a as a nation and as a territory you can use that to to uh, to amplify your power and depending on who you are so um, the state I mean we, we the state as a nation and a territory like the United States or Russia or China has this power over individualism has laws in place um, has um, I had a friend uh, early on when I was at the University of Utah that decided to buy some pot it was his first time so he just went out not so smart and bought some pot unfortunately it was under uh, an undercover age and he had to go to jail and it really messed his life up even though it was a first-time offense I think it actually became a felony they actually pushed the, the issue to make an example out of him. It was this very tragic situation. And it, something like that, where the, um, or, or uh, you know, where the state gets in and, and sort of controls your individual freedom. I have a problem with that. And a lot of times science, you know, like the, the problem with drugs, like my friend, what, what are drugs? You know, if you, you use that term drugs in a tribe, especially in the Amazon, they're not going to know what you're talking about. Drugs is a very loaded modern word that the state, the, the, the nation uses to enforce laws. And, and, and I'm going to, here to tell you, much, most of that is bullshit. You know, LSD and all the problems and the damage it does. And, 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 and there's a problem there. And the state likes to have control over that. Um, Things like uh, coca, which is a very sacred plant that's been used for thousands of years. I've used it. Uh, is connected to cocaine. But unfortunately, we're the ones, pharmaceutical-wise, that, that isolated this, this active element in coca and made this thing called cocaine. And, you know, it's, it's become this horrible process that um, it has nothing to do with coca the coca leaf that's just very tribal plant medicine that's amazing and I have tried both things cocaine and coca there's no they're not even similar there's there, there's just no, it's not even the same thing so controlling things and going and then just trying to destroy coca and destroy the tribal element and because you don't like cocaine when really the problem is is we're the ones in the first place that generated the knowledge to have this thing cocaine even the President of the United States, Ulysses Grant, one of them, was addicted to some degree to this medication that was called cocaine that later became the drug that people were addicted to. And, you know, addictions can go into anything. They can go into sex. They can go into, you know, which is part of pornography. They can go into, like, chocolate. 
can go into fatty foods, they can go into like TV, you know, the drugs is one of these terms that the state uses to have control over things. And so um, I'm just throwing this out because I want to get back to, to this, that there's more to life than the materialist view. And I think when you look at ancient culture and you look at tribal formats and you look at some religions, you get this, this, this power of the spiritual, of the unseen element, of, the, of a creator, of a process that isn't always manifested in this overly important realm of the physical. And so when you start reducing life to what you see in terms of the cultural, cultural format of the state, of the nation, then it becomes a problem because you can't expand your mind and can't move beyond the displeasure of your job and paying bills and um, you're involved in such that you that you spend your entire life just trying to have a baseline and not really getting this experience of of being alive and and of being open to other to the universe to to, to other possibilities because you're enslaved to this process of constantly trying to have the money and maybe you get that one vacation a year i don't know or or you spend your time watching tv and movies and you don't get this experience of the other otherly world of the potentiality of what might be out there in the universe so i want to pull that back into this experience of the blood red moons of august in the great salt lake desert a little bit of history here. Um, this is a time in my life when I, this, this adventure, this journey I make out into the Great Salt Lake Desert, and I've, and I've explained that a little, this, this vast realm of what some would term as nothingness. It's so bare, in fact, and, and bare in means of just so beautiful and stark that you can, from the, from a, uh, from the standpoint of being in a high on a high mountain range, you can actually see the curvature of the Earth. It's one of the few places on the planet where you can see the curvature of our planet because it's so bare and goes so far, 100 to 200 miles. You can see the curvature of the Earth. It's an amazing place. So um, I had had this severe event of being involved in the first of many wars in the Middle East called the Persian Gulf Crisis which essentially for some of us became a chemical and biological war. And I don't want to go into all the um, processes of this, that, but there were some really awful things done in that war, and I've talked about this before, and a lot of innocent people died um, to get this thing called oil, uh, a resource of oil that did not belong to us. And it involved uh, some incredible human atrocities that still have not been reckoned with. And I, I think this was a, a very shocking thing to be in, because I was largely a religious person. Uh, I grew up in the Mormon faith, had a strong morality. Um, this war breached all those things and, and caused a, a, an incredible internal conflict inside of me. That made me highly doubt these terms patriotism and freedom and defense because I think I realized after this tragic event that lasted largely three four days a week uh, 
a lot of innocent people died that we have still not come to terms with. Some, many of those were, were retreating. We, we didn't have to kill the amount of people that we did. It became this sort of testing ground for all our modern warfare, and we tested them on very innocent people. It's a, it's a long story, and sometime I'll explain it more, but it, it was a shocking event that, that countered all the things that I had, um, that countered all the things that I'd grown up with. It just threw it in my face and made me understand that there was a lot of lies that there was a lot of uh, dishonesty and that there was an absolute shocking agenda behind what was called freedom in the United States. And that we, you know, and I've mentioned this before, that our entire country is built on the genocide of indigenous people, not only here in the United States, but outside of the United States. And that could be argued that was necessary, maybe, but not to the extent that it's went on since the founding of our country and um, and that we have to reckon with that at some point and to move on into something better and, and, and more spiritual maybe so but I came home just shattered and um, nothing really worked for me and later on, I would, I would get uh, involved with Rinzai Zen order and, and, be, and had thoughts of actually becoming a monk. And so, spent a, a lot of time in that discipline, and it is a, an incredible discipline, and, um, to try to come to terms with this, my, my culture, my religion, for me, not for someone else, this is for me, shattered and taken apart. And... Um, what I had before, I didn't have when I came back home from a war. And um, it was really a, a, an incredible crisis. And on top of that, I had all these letters that my father, who committed, sadly enough, suicide when I was 10, he left behind uh, letters and uh, questions about America, about the religion he was in, about a lot of things that led to this this incredible crisis that he had where he finally ended his life and I had those and I had his story and it, it caused a lot of instability and questions especially his death that even though my mother had remarried at the time my 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 father still had a, a profound effect on me and he died in a very tragic way when I got older and was able to get a hold of his letters and read them and contemplate the questions that he had about America, that he had about uh, the religion I had grown up in, and it led to this uh, crisis that was excused in the name of mental illness, which really was not a problem with him, but other things that um, brought that into question. So there, I, a lot of things compounded in my life to bring me to this very... Um, soul-searching, dark night of the soul uh, experience that I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, try to explain here. And really until 30 years later, I was not able to fully understand. So I was ripe for the moment. Um, and, you know, I just had this incredible collapse. My culture wasn't working, my religion wasn't working, uh, my education wasn't working. I was ready to graduate the university with 
at least three degrees. Um, sometimes I feel like I had so many degrees that I was a circle, 360 degrees. <laughs> Nothing was working. And war just added to this absolute uh, catastrophic collapse of, of who and what I was and what was going on in my life. And then this, this mind-shattering event happened. The first of, of many, and this is this initial one I'm, I, I, I want to try and explain to some degree here. And so let's move on with that experience. When you have a full-blown mystical experience, so to speak, or, or something that's founded in the world outside of the quantitative measurement of the physical, and I've mentioned, I like to mention ayahuasca a lot of times, uh, and that's one of these things that sort of just shatter your reality. But I also have mentioned in previous episodes, I've had three experiences with dying that were pretty profound, and I never went into complete detail of any of those three experiences, but I, they were profound enough to, that would have been enough to rattle me. And they were outside of the context of religion and culture. And I've mentioned that um, I have a powerful memory retention for dreams, especially narrative dreams that have went on since I've been a boy that are as real as this reality, nine to five, that are very concrete and they don't change. They're substantial realities within themselves and they've went on for years since I've been a boy in the dream state. And that too, I think, has to deal with this thing called sleep, not getting sleep. Because dreams, the root word means thoughts and ideas that we have when we're asleep. That's, that's kind of what it is. It's all about equating sleep with laziness and not getting sleep and working. And, and um, you know, we, we can talk about that later too. Um, how the state defines healthy, how the state defines um how ownership on you, ownership on your individual life. And so the, the dream becomes equated with laziness. Instead of like, is it is it a, a content where you can explore this unseen realm of, of, of expanding your mind beyond the parameters that you're raised with in the state, in, the, in, in a world of laws, in a world of have-to-dos. Have so, um... I often say to people, uh, you know, I, I just finished a book um, about the ayahuasca experience from the outside, from a, from a person that was kind of trying to look at it in a quantitative way. Uh, it was interesting um, what it does to you chemically and uh, to you, the processes of your thinking. And, you know, it was a, sort of a scientific thing. But I got the feeling the author himself had never had the experience of, of an ayahuasca event and that's where you know if you haven't had one of these experiences like I said that sort of shatters your sort of makes your reality unstable and, and lets you know hey there's a lot more than what you're seeing and what you're experiencing if you haven't had something like that then you're not you're going to say well you know this guy's nuts well, this guy's just he has too much too, too good of an imagination he needs to come back to earth and I think there is an importance of having a grounding. Don't get me wrong. 
That's very, very important to have a grounding, to know where you live, what your address is, and to realize that you do have things you need to do, and there are laws. I have a problem with these extremes where there's no laws, and hey, dude, let's just, let's just smoke doobies and talk about it, man, and open the universe up. Well, you know, it could be this, it might be that. You know, just that whole stoner thing that has no discipline behind it. You just sit there and, and, and just spend the night um, in, in what I like to call, and certainly, well, is pipe dreams. There's no discipline to, the, to that experience. So um, that, that's one of the extremes. Or the other extreme is, I won't touch anything. You know, I will, I will, I won't touch anything. I won't touch coffee. I won't touch, but you know, I'll eat a lot of chocolate and I'll look at pornography and I won't address my other addictions because, you know, what's worse, you know, consumption of sugars and chocolate all day long and getting fat and eating bad food for you or having coffee, which essentially might be actually healthy for you. But in the extreme, what is healthy for you? Even if you breathe too much air, you're going to start having problems. You hyperventilate. And, you have, and there's all kinds of medical problems with breathing too much or breathing too little. I mean, I think there's baselines. And I, and I like to get back. I said, no matter what the experience is. And when you go to these tribes that use uh, in their ceremonies things like ayahuasca and yopo, these powerful hallucinogenic medicines, they have extreme disciplines. There, this isn't just something, hey, dude, you know, let's get high and let's look at the pink light out there. Wow, man. It's, it's a discipline formed over thousands of years of trial and error. This is what you need to do, and this is where you're going to go. And that is extremely important because, you know, when I was in high school, mushrooms and pot and, you know, it just, we did, I did it all. And, um... It just is not the same thing when you get into a discipline, into a ceremonial format. When you begin to explore these realms, it's a lot like going to the moon. It's a lot like sending Voyager out there to Jupiter and Saturn. There are disciplines when you're in that element of exploration and of learning. So that's what I like to um, say about these kind of experiences. That um, there is a baseline, there is grounding. There is common sense. When you get with tribes, uh, Hopi, Zuni, uh, some of these Amazonian tribes, uh, get into Central America where there's a huge amount of traditional tradition still going on after thousands of years. The Aztecan Empire did not end. Uh, it's, there's still processes going on, not human sacrifice, which is another thing we could talk about because the Spanish propaganda ignores what the Spanish did, which is absolutely horrible. Going back to the beginning of this, uh, this broadcast, which is in the first part, because this will be in, in, in two parts, uh, I started out explaining the, uh, the uniqueness of this, this landscape that I'm going out into in terms of the, uh, the archaic past. And there's a Pleistocene lake there, and there's uh, paleo and post-paleo bands, some sort of tribe essences. Um, I, I use that word tribe, but it's more bands of wandering clans and such that are taking place initially uh, early on before, you know, centuries later, thousands of years later, that, uh, uh, that the Mormon uh, culture came in. So uh, I laid that out, but then I, 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 I wanted to 
sort of expand on uh, on the experience of you know these kind of experiences that that move beyond the nine to five reality that expand our mind into the possibility of multiplicity of consciousness and uh, different types of realities and experiences and so I just felt a need to kind of lay out a format and we're kind of coming uh, you know moving towards this event that's, that's, that's going to happen to me and so um, I move back and forth through that just to kind of lay out some kind of a foundation and give you a better idea. As I said before, I don't want to just throw you into this experience. So I had been going out to the West Desert, the Great Salt Lake Desert, uh, largely started out as archaeological um, stuff. I mean, I, I was there at the University of Utah working in the lab and pottery analysis and involved with all kinds of rare artifacts and dating them and putting them in categories and um, I wanted to I wanted to get out of that scholastic environment and go out into the wild and actually explore these these sites that had been uh, excavated. I wanted to see these caves with 15 feet of stratigraphic intact material evidence of human occupation. And um, so that's kind of how it started. But then what it became was understanding the cultures that had lived there and the ones that still did and understanding in, in that context and then you know it was just seeing this fantastic place that i'd grown up by but didn't know that well except on a few trips so i started to walk and, and to run and to in my mind map out this area that's really fairly unmapped actually because of the military restrictions on this vast pieces of land that are used uh, to test secret materials and warfare uh, um, things on. So um, this was one of those trips that uh, I was going to go out. You know, you'd have to drive essentially about 50 to 60 miles from urban Salt Lake, the Wasatch Front, as it's called, which combines not just Salt Lake, but the far northern perimeters of Brigham City, and then you get down to Nephi, Utah. So it's this huge, uh, the, uh, these, and, it's, and it's kind of growing together now quickly into one urban expression, which I don't know how good that is, but it's happening. But the salt, but the Wasatch Front, and, and specific, uh, specifically Salt Lake City, is where I was living. And so with my wife and family, and, um, I would start making these, uh, and I, I lived in Utah Valley as well, actually. Actually, when I started this, I was in Utah Valley, so living in, in Orem. And uh, so I guess that would have been the starting point. But it's a long drive. And uh, to get out into the West Desert, into this fantastic, vast, open wilderness of, of just desert play, a desert floor, white, essentially white. And it goes on forever without anything forever in parenthesis. It goes on 100 miles or more. Um, it's, and it's roadless. There's no, there's no houses. There's, no, there's a few old mining camps and military things dating all the way back to world war ii but it's largely um roadless so you have to walk it you can't uh and it's not easy to walk depending on the time of year summer's okay but if it rains or you have a lot of mud and that was one of the problems with the donor party way back in 
mid-1850s, but decided to take a shortcut based on some Hastings' ridiculous um, maps, this fatal shortcut that they uh, made across the Great Salt Lake Desert. And it was extremely muddy at that time. And it, it, it can be a mire of, of quicksand uh, if, if it's not, if the conditions aren't right. And the surface of the Great Salt Lake Desert isn't hard, which often it is, but sometimes it wasn't. And it so happens that the Donner Party picked the wrong time. And it was uh, not easy to cross that delayed them from, arri- from arrival, and, and they had to go through the Sierras. And, you know, we all know the story of the Donner, Donner Party, this huge snowstorm that ended very tragically. So, um, it's, it's not an easy place to go. It's quite beautiful, uh, and most people s- drive a little bit and get out of their car and look at it and get the back end, like, what the hell is that? Or they race their cars out and break the world land speed records. But just to go out there and look at it and to walk for miles and for days at a time is, <clears throat> even to this day, is kind of unheard of. And that's, that's kind of what I was doing, is like, you know, not only looking at very ancient uh, archaeological sites, but I was getting to know the plants and the animals and exploring this. It was basically like the surface of the moon. I couldn't talk to anybody that really knew, didn't understand what I was saying. I mean, people just, unless you had a construction project or a reason to be out there, you're not just going to go out there and walk around for days and weeks at a time. <laughs> so this is what I've been doing over... Um, roughly 10 years and um, this is one of those days where I just got in my truck and and, and uh, my old uh, Ford truck and I put my you know had all my stuff where you fix a flat and you can address engine problems all of which I'd had in the past I had all the stuff with me that would enable me to get to get out there and then to get back home and um, that you know, I'm going on one of those days. You know, I'm going out there, and uh, I got my maps, and this is before GPS and before computers and cell phones, largely. So I got my food. I have my water. Uh, I have certain special shoes that I, I had made that got me across this playa, this this fantastic white, dry, sometimes very muddy, hundred miles of nothing but that and then these these floating beautiful mountain ranges and they do float because of the the way heat works uh, you know the mirage is very apparent out there because we talked i talked about the curvature of the earth you have these biological islands of rock mountains islands at one time in the in lake bonneville that evolved with their own sort of ecosystem because they are isolated from each other and they, they just kind of float uh, out there with the, the heat makes the heat actually has this very odd especially if it's very hot has this very odd um, effect of making it look like there's water out there and also you can see things from a hundred miles away that seem like they're right there like like they're a lot closer than you th- they're a lot further away than you think they are and there's this constant mirage of things like that happening if you want to read some fascinating stuff Read about Fremont's experience when he, you know, the early explorer that came to, that 
started to wanted to map out the Great Salt Lake Desert and this very very odd experience that they had. Um, actually, I'm getting Fremont and Stansbury mixed up. Fremont was long before, you know, not long before, but a significant amount of time before. And his stuff is is amazing. His journals. Stansbury came later and had his own incredible experiences, and he's the one that started the mapping. I, the the Mormons had already moved into Salt Lake and it was already being developed as this little town, city. Uh, but Fremont stuff is absolutely mind-blowing, and not to mention Stansbury's stuff, which is very significant. There's a lot of it. So if you get a chance, read that, because it's, it's, it's a mind-blower, because these are the first white people that go into this area. <clears throat> and so the, the reason I'm bringing this up, of course, is because um, these earlier explorers and this radical experience with this landscape that's changed little since and in fact it's changed little since you know a thousand years other than lake draining and people you know tribes coming in and out but earlier explorers had talked about the sheer strange effect of crossing the great salt lake desert and uh, a ghost land that some of the tribes actually called it where you would see these spirit entities walking well, there can be an antelope or a coyote 50 miles away, depending on, on the nature of the sun and how hot it is and the um, effect of the heat waves that may appear to be. And this is a very odd thing out there. It may appear to be like 100 yards away. And as you walk towards it, you realize, uh, Dave, no, that's nowhere in sight. And then, <laughs> because distances and um, spaces are an illusion out there just because of this bare the bareness of the of the earth there there's no trees it's just this this playa left behind thousands and thousands of years of deposits from Lake Bonneville that just left in the, the salt content the alkaline content is so extreme that very few things can grow on that and so Sunlight, even moonlight, play a, a very uh, odd show on this on this large surface of bare earth, and it really uh, for it really messes with your mind. And uh, distances are not what they appear, and you can only understand this if you get out of your truck and walk this for hours and, and days. You start to get this feeling that you know. It's like my Roshi uh, used to talk about emptiness. Uh, you know, emptiness is a state of mind that you attain where you're sort of, there's a neutrality there. You're not engaging the thought process, but you're observing feelings and emotions. And so it's, it's sort of like, you know, like Dolly's, uh, Dolly, Dolly List and Landscapes, you know. That's the Great Salt Lake. I always thought when Dolly did his paintings, especially the ones on time, this famous, I'm forgetting the title of it, with the ants on the clock and um, all the all the mind-bending things in that particular painting. Uh, I think it concerns the perception of reality. I always thought Dolly came to the Great Salt Lake Desert. And this place in Spain is similar to the, to, um, to the Great Salt Lake desert that Dolly uses his uh, the background for a lot of his profound paintings in the um, style of surrealism so it's it's very you know so it is Zen it's it's this essential emptiness that gets you to really that messes with your mind there's no houses there's no roads 
Even the GPSs today fail largely on this large open area. Uh, you, you know, where am I? Oh, well, you're at point two nine nine six three degrees west. So what? <laughs> I don't even my tr my my truck is back there on the road, um, three hours away. Uh, there's no roads, and I just keep walking. You know, I have my backpack, and I have. And this is before cell phones and before computers. I have the things that to get by, and I know where spring, freshwater springs are. I know where I need to be if it gets real severe, unless I'm way out there in the middle of nowhere where there's nothing but this this large expanse of beautiful white starkness, and then the heat rising up. So that's that's what I'm driving towards, and and this is just another one of those times I'm exploring and. Uh, you know, and just getting a feel for this tremendous wilderness, and largely unmatched anywhere in the in the world. So um, I'm going out to that, and I have to drive. You know, I think it's about 60 miles to point A. You know, or point B. A is Salt Lake City, and once I arrive at point B, 60 miles of driving on I-80, and then. Uh, some more paved military roads and eventually most of it's on dirt road on this uh, set of railroad tracks because the Union Pacific built across this playa built a road and railroads across that which is not as easy to do as you would think because it's a little dangerous because there's sometimes just inches between you and this 85 miles an hour of freight train that can be two to three miles long 85 miles you know hour the trains are moving that's a lot of power and that can cause a lot of destruction and people have got hit by that the, 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 those freight train lines that run out there so it can be dangerous you drive past the great salt lake uh, a part of it that most people don't go or didn't anyway that that messes with you it's just this you know it's this huge mirror of the sky and sometimes the great salt lake uh in this part of it can actually in the summer turn blood red it looks just like blood because of the um, the chemicals in the water and the brine shrimp and uh, which is a, uh, an unusually an unusual life form that, that not only in the Great Salt Lake but it's 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 evolved in the Great Salt Lake to be very unusual and at certain times of the year in reaction with the chemicals and there's some pretty rare chemicals uh, in the Great Salt Lake magnesium and other things that are mined there and salt. Um, and that's another story because I actually worked out there for a long time driving these big mining trucks to build these dikes out into these settling ponds where um, you can collect these r rare minerals. So I get my, my gear and everything, you know, I have my food and, and, and my water and I have a destination in mind. I've been out there several times, in fact, uh, a number of years I know I kind of know where, where I'm going and, and it's 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 there's maps don't do any good but I, I I'm, I'm prepared you know for whatever happens uh, because I've had a lot of trial and error experiences to prepare me <laughs> and um, I, I, I hike and I run for miles until my truck just disappears and, and and remember you know that there's only really one my trucks not parked back on the railroad the this this 10 feet of uh, dike that's been built by the railroad this incredible uh, feed across the you know the mud flats of the great salt lake desert it extends from nevada to utah and um it's this feat of engineering that's quite amazing part of it part of it's this 
big bridge that crosses over the Great Salt Lake, but they built this 10-foot dike that has these railroad tracks set on the top, you know, going from Utah into Nevada and from Nevada back into Utah. So it's, 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 there's two, two sets of tracks, I think three actually, one's the service tracks. So you have to drive off of that uh, very solid, you know, road onto these other these extension roads that have been built off for uh, the military, you know. And they have fences sometimes, and there's just extension roads, and you drive off the big 10-foot dike that stretches for um, 40, 50 miles onto these little extension roads built for the military service vehicles that go out and do whatever strange things they do. So there's not too many ways to these biological islands that used to be in Lake Bonneville but now are in this great tremendous desert that are surrounded by endless miles of white stark desert. There's these islands, these high mountain ranges and I'm going off to one and I, 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 I park my truck after I drive across the, um, the, uh, the extension from the railroad uh, park my truck and then I you know the rest I have to walk and I have to run because you can't drive it and then I have to enter in on the uh, military zone, which is um, is I'll often have has a fence there and even remote cameras. And so, but I, I need to get there because that's where the real pristine wilderness is. It's untouched by humans largely, except for the aircraft and whatever strange things fly over. Um, you listen to Art Bell and his place that he used to have that he talked about, you know. Um, uh, all the top secret stuff. Listen, this stuff out here in, in the Great Salt Lake Desert uh, makes that look like a walk in the park because you're going to see things and experience it. I could make a whole five-hour episode on the stuff that I've seen out there that's unexplainable, um, that I don't even know what it is. Moving at supersonic speed and other things that could be mistaken for UFOs, dropping huge bombs, uh, all kinds of weapons that are used. Um, that you have that experience, but I'm not out there for that. I could care less. I don't. I know what's there. I need to avoid certain places. So, um, miles and miles, my, my truck uh, disappears, and there's no no phones. Um, this is the day before cell phones, and you know there's no GPS and maps don't work because the map that part of the map's missing, or and if it's there, they don't put in the details, and so. It's a walking and learning experience, and like I said, there's nothing out there. It's just this bizarre, surreal landscape of nothing. And I do mean literally nothing. And until you get these, you know, high, steep, rocky mountain ranges, uh, these islands that have these high mountains on them, and you, that's where I'm going. And uh, I spend a long, long, hot, it was very hot, this is August, and, the blood red moons of August, as I call this, you know, episode. It's a very hot day, and I and I've hiked a lot and ran a lot of miles, and I'm out of food and almost out of water, and you know, um, it's a long day, and I start I start back, you know, the long hike, because you know you get there. That's half the journey, because you got to go all the way back, and they may take one half of the day, and the other half of the day is returning. And by the time you get there, you're extremely, uh, you're exhausted. You're, I'm ready to go home. I want to go <laughs> And so I'm in a hurry to get in my truck. You know, I, I've, I put in 25 miles maybe, you know, and, and this is not, this is rough miles. There's no roads, you know, there's no, 
uh, I've been out there in the bizarreness too, you know, with the military stuff, and and, and the landscape is totally unriveting bizarre. It's and I'm not used, you know, you're not used to that. Even if you are, have been going out there for a few years, like I had, then you still you never quite get used to all this stuff out there. And um, and I, you know, I talked about this this sense that that the, the heat uh, and the um, the way that the heat plays, it almost looks like there's there, it's filled full of water. You know, you get these very powerful uh, mirages, uh, and, you know, and literally um, that make these vast mountain ranges um, float as if they're floating, they're not connected, or as if they're sticking up out of a vast ocean that's not there. It's like Lake Bonneville suddenly there, and it looks like you're looking at water, but that's just the heat. And it's a, it's a land of vast illusions. And uh, you never get used to that. Uh, and that, you know, you're, you're kind of in that element. And then you're going to these uh, archaeology sites, if you want to call them that, these ancient native sites uh, where these tribes have lived, even during the Ice Age, they're, they're, they're untouched. Some of them have uh, what's called the Clovis points in them. You know, that's supposed to be the essential starting point, point is the Clovis cultures, the early cultures, although that's highly disputed now by almost everyone, including me. There are pre-Clovis, there is pre-Clovis out there. And it, it, what that means is the culture is very ancient. 30, 40, 50,000 years or more. This is pre-Clovis, highly disputed by the supposed scientist. But I'm able to go to these sites and I can look at them and I can find these projectile points that are called Pleistocene Ice Age Clovis points. And I think these are much fluted, they're much older than the Clovis culture. But so this is all this incredible stuff's there. And sometimes there's a mine, mining process where a couple of nuts come in there and decide they're going to dig for gold. And, you know, they don't find it. And they, they waste all their money and, you know, they live out there and their shacks decompose and fall apart and they leave and you know if their wife if they had a wife their wife's gone because she's like you know you've been gone for like 10 years buddy drop dead <laughs> you know there's this it, but it's largely a ghost land where there's not any um modern human occupation it's all very very ancient so i'm walking back from another day out there but this is not going to end up being another day because when i arrive at my truck uh, after a long, long, long day. So um, I get in my truck and I decide, you know, uh, just because I'm tired, I'm just going to, I'm going to go off the road a little bit. It looks pretty solid there. And uh, back up, turn around so I can get, get in the right direction because I'm facing the opposite direction that I should be towards the, the this 10-foot dike that has the these two, three sets of uh, amazing railroad tracks that, um, you know, that run clear into Nevada or back towards um, Salt Lake. I got to get back on there so I can go home. You know, and I'm, I'm, but first of all, I'm on this secondary road, that, this military road that's been extended off that dike, and I need to turn back towards the big dike and get on that dike and, and head back home to Salt Lake, which is a long ways. And you know, being out in the desert a lot, I, I kind of knew in the back of my head that that was a really stupid thing to do to get off the you know the, the hard impacted road 
that's made onto the desert floor. It's just something you shouldn't do. Even if it looks solid. <laughs> I'd had so many past experiences with getting unstuck and um, changing flats and, you know, whatever. It's just, it, I could go on forever about experiences where I shouldn't have done what I'm going to do. But when you're tired, you're just in a hurry and you don't think about it. So I went off the road to turn around to get my truck facing the right direction so I could drive back and get on this, this railroad tracks, this, 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 this raised bed of... It's about 10 feet above the desert floor for the railroad tracks. There's a little service road there, and I'm heading, want to head back to that, and then eventually on dirt roads and asphalt, and then back on the main road to Dosa Salt Lake and be home. And that's all I can really think about, you know. So, you know, I turn around, get off the road, and, <laughs> and within seconds, uh, I sink both the back wheels into the soft play of it can either be really hard or be extremely soft, a lot of times deceptive-wise, because even if it's hot and clear and hasn't rained for a long time, if you break through the crust, then you, this mud there goes on forever because of these springs and uh, the water table is near the surface there. So it, it can be a big problem if you break through that crust, and that's what I did. So I sunk both of the back wheels to the axle almost instantly. And then I realized, you know, Dave, you're not going to be home for a long time <laughs> and there's no cell phone to use and i mean i know what i got to do because this has happened before although not this bad um i gotta i have to dig myself out and you know you dig yourself out and there's rocks around and you have to walk way over there and get the rocks and drop them in and when you get it solid enough then you just little by little raise the back of your truck up with a you know and i had a jack for that to the point where I can uh, I can get out and get back on the road. And then I have to make my own little road back onto the one that I drove <laughs> to turn around. It's just this long process. So I knew, shit, uh, I'm not going to be home. And, you know, there's no pay phone, and I can't tell my wife, hey, I'm going to be late. But by, by this time, she's been married to me for a while, and she knows, well, Dave's always late, sometimes by hours, if not days. But the biggest problem I have is I'm losing daylight quick. I mean, it's getting towards the 10 o'clock hour. And even though the light quality is, is pretty good out there and I have sort of moon, uh, you know, I'm going to have a full moon here, so I'll probably be okay. Um, and it, this place gets so beautiful and so surreal and so bizarre as the sun sets. Um, and in this particular day... Um, as I'm trying to get my truck out and working on this um, this incredible, uh, beautiful, surreal moment of evolves, where as the sun sets, um, the desert turns a blood red, and there's you know there's a heavy smoke in the air because there's forest fires burning in Nevada, which isn't too far away. Nevada is about 25 miles away, but it's a forest up on one of their you know. Basin and range is what this is called, with a big desert. Basin and range, you know, land in between these extensive mountain ranges that are quite high, that have snow on the top. Um, and then you have the basin, the large sagebrush ocean between ranges. And you have all these ranges and basins and ranges and basins, and then you have this huge desert, like the Black Rock Desert and the Great Salt Lake Desert, that just go for miles with nothing. It's just lifeless, beautiful white 
uh, Black Rock Desert isn't white, but the Great Salt Lake Desert is this white alkaline content crust. This particular uh, evening, it's turning blood red. I've never seen it like that. And as it does that, as the sun sets, then this huge, in the east, this huge blood red moon rises. And I, it's, it's something I've never seen like that. The moon's huge. I can see the details of the craters up there. I mean, in that clarity, the clarity of the air up there, even with smoke, is unreal. And this huge moon rises up. Um, that's something like I, it was, and you know, I'm trying to work here. I got to hurry up because <laughs> my flashlight batteries are kind of running out. Got this old army flashlight I brought back with me from the Middle East. I put these double these D batteries in there. And there and for some reason, this night I'm kind of running out. The light's getting dim, and I, I really don't want to sleep overnight because this place can get pretty damn bizarre, you know. Uh, and I and I'll explain that later why. And then I realizing why tribes traditionally avoided this extent of of desert just because it's so it looks so bizarre and it is bizarre it's it's the raw naked earth nature like you've never seen it before and then i i think i heard a couple of coyotes singing that really haunting way the coyotes do why they're called song dogs i can hear that way in the distance you know Ooh, so kind of like a wolf but a little different than the wolf coyotes have their own particular call it's incredibly haunting and maybe you'll see the shadow of one on the distant little island I just come from, and they make this this music, and that adds to it. And so, um, the stars are kind of coming out, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to pay attention to what I'm doing, and it's kind of hard because I'm by myself, and there's no one going to help me. You know, you have to be really self-sufficient in areas like this, and be prepared for the uh, for the. Um, for some bizarre event to happen like that you know you break down or you get a flat tire like i said i've had i've lost track of how many flat tires i'd had i used to actually carry two and three spares sometimes just because even though i had fix a flat and all the things i just lost so many tires out there and so i learned to carry a lot of tires with me <laughs> how to patch them up and everything else so I'm jacking my truck up, you know, and putting the rocks in there and getting it up so we're right to the point it's level so I can, and then making this road so I can drive back onto the one that I got off of to turn around. <laughs> and I'm kind of not too happy, and I'm kind of like fascinated by what I'm seeing. And um, then something happens that I can't explain. And this is before... Uh, I'd ever had an ayahuasca experience. Um, and this is what I say, you don't need these plant medications to have a full-blown mystical experience. And, and this is this is what's going to happen. Um, I'm really, I'm, ex I'm totally exhausted. Uh, and I'm in this immense place where I'm probably the only person for a hundred miles. I'm, you know, there's no one else but the coyotes and the mountain sheep, the Rocky Mountain sheep, the proghorn that are out there, that's an antelope, so it wouldn't be that, but there's actually Rocky Mountain sheep in some of those these, these mountains, you know, that, that are islands. But it's, it's a strange place, and especially at sunrise, and in particular at sunset. So, 
as I'm doing this, something happens. And I, and I want to sort of like fast forward this because I lose awareness. I, I don't, I'm on, for all, all I can say at this point is suddenly I become aware and I'm and I'm, it's night and I'm driving back to Salt Lake on this railroad bed, you know, uh, they got the radio on, uh, KSL, I don't remember, which is a prominent AM station there, and I can barely get it because they're static, and I'm getting Mexican channels on my radio, and, you know, AM radio can be pretty bizarre, comparable to shortwave radio, because at night you get all these transmissions from all over the place. Anyway, you know, I'm barely getting KSL in Salt Lake, you know, I'm listening, I don't remember what it was I was listening to, and, I be, and I, I, I'm looking at my speedometer, says 45 because the road's kind of the railroad bed's kind of a tough road to drive on and suddenly i'm like what the hell what what what, what happened here i just lost you know my i'm out i'm unstuck i'm in my truck and i'm i'm driving back and it's night and it, and as that happens a huge freight train you know I don't know, I can see it in my mirror, that light, because that's the only light source. It's coming quickly, and you know, when you're on this railroad bed, you're sometimes inches from that, and you can feel the ground rumbling, because, you know, it's, that's the effect of the train on this, on this, you know, from Nevada to Utah, and then we'll go across the lake later on. Um, you can, that's the only way out there, and it has a sort of earthquake effect on the road, especially if it's a big train going fast, and you can feel the can feel it moving and this big bright lights coming out of my rear view mirror. I'm hearing the radio, I'm driving along, and um, I'm like, what the hell? What just happened to all the last how did I get my truck out? How did I how did I get here? What just ha I mean there's a total blank time I've lost Two, two hours of time because I look at my watch and it's 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 midnight I've lost at least two hours and I can't remember anything and it's really messing me up um, I have a complete absence of memory of where what happened I can't remember and as I drive as I'm driving back you know looking at my speedometer you know that I could have a little bit of light on my dash the radio is kind of in the background you know with the, with the static and stuff uh, then I wonder what happened and then something starts to open up just a little crack opens up in my memory and it's it's something I'm not prepared for it's it's an experience that um, I didn't I I, I didn't want, you know, it's something so severe and so powerful that, you know, it's like, I want to just close the, the, the fucking door. Bam. I don't, I, I just want to get back home because that can't be real. That possibly didn't, that, that couldn't have happened. And I really try to remember where, where did I lose consciousness? Where did, at what point when I was jacking my truck up and filling the rocks in the hole and making this road back at what point did I lose consciousness and why did I lose consciousness 
and this this cracks opening up in my mind that um, is so powerful and so bizarre that I I really I essentially don't want to remember. You know you. <laughs> You read about these UFO abductions, like some of the really famous ones that are hard to dispute. Trying to think of that couple, uh, the black husband and white wife that had this severe alien abduction. I'll think of their names in a minute. Back in the, um, back in the 60s. If you've heard any of those tapes of that, oh my God, that's, that happened. Something happened there. It's pretty, it's pretty frightening, actually. And the, the, it's not pleasurable for these, this couple to, uh, to tell their experience, they don't. They don't. They don't. They don't, um, they don't want to. I mean, it's 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 this night of terror, and you can listen to the tapes yourself, and it just really takes you um, into this other realm. Now I remember their names: Betty and Barney Hill. I think 1960, 61, 62. I'm not sure on the date. Um, and for a long time, you couldn't get the audio of their interviews. I, was it a psychologist? Someone interviewed them. Um, and, and for a long time, those are unavailable. Uh, I mean, the full, the full episode of, of them being interviewed. They're horrifying. They're, I, I don't, I, I, there's nothing pleasurable in that. And, and, and you can tell these people don't want to be put through this experience, but they, they need to talk about what this fantastic thing that happened to them. And so, uh, Listen to that. <laughs> it, uh, it'll uh, mess you up a little bit. Uh, you know, and then there's other things like uh, transformation, which is um, a whole experience uh, that this famous writer had with actual alien abductions. I think they even made a movie. I don't think it was very good, but there are these, these um, experiences that people have had in that sort of realm of of mind expansion or mind warped or something like that. And so this isn't a UFO abduction. <laughs> you think that's where this is going. Um, there's no spaceship, although I think I would have wished that there was a spaceship <laughs> or something that would like prepare me for as, as this door starts to crack quite an, an involuntarily. I think I even pulled my truck over a few times and I'm just like, Wow, I you know what the hell is going on here? And now when I look back after having uh, um, ayahuasca experiences and uh, to some extent hallucinogenic mushrooms uh, in a tribal format, I've had them before that. Um, it's it's comparable. Like you know you, you you're waiting, you, you take this stuff, you know, especially with ayahuasca, it's, it's awful. Uh, ayahuasca just you drink this stuff that's just <laughs> it's just horrible. You drink it and you're like, well, that's stupid. What? Nothing's going to happen. I, I, yeah, I'm going to throw up because it's just so awful. But, you know, what, why? What's, gonna, what's going on here? I just drank this stuff and you're asking me if I want some more. And I'm like, listen, um, I got to go throw up. And when I come back, I don't know if I want any more of this. And besides, nothing's happening. That's kind of like, you know, and then about 20 minutes later, depending on who you are and how much you take and yeah, something happens, and when it starts happening, you don't want it to happen. Because it's, you know, but with that stuff, there's no going back. It's going to happen. And if you, if you, and if you, eventually, if you do it enough, you learn that you need to sit down, and there's this discipline in having the experience. 
that goes beyond the ooh and wow factor to, to this actual exploration that takes place. But this is years before I have those experiences, and so I don't have any sort of discipline established or, or know-how. It's just, it's just happening out there in the middle of the desert when I'm trying to drive home in my truck. It, it's past midnight now. Uh, trying to stop from remembering or, or kind of trying to remember but not really wanting to and this little crack in my mind of the memory is starting to open up into something that I'm not sure what it is. I, I, I can't really fully understand it. I just, I'm going to have this severe experience. Now, you know, I'm having dreams. I know about dreams, and I have memories of them. And I, since I've been a kid, and I, and I record them, and I know that. But this is like something I really don't, and I, and I think I, I liken that to the ayahuasca experience. And it's something I don't want to be involved with. It's so powerful, uh, and so... There's so much information that it's like cracking open the universe in a way I've never seen it. And so I'm trying to get back home and experience this memory. And I still, to this day, have not uh, downloaded, opened up everything that happened. Uh, and I mean, I think experiences like this that, um, that are so deep uh, and, 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 and concern multi-states of reality and consciousness it's hard to relate those verbally and that's that's what I'm struggling here to do but one of the one of the things going on and you know sometimes I even contemplate the most this most bizarre thing is I'm still back there making that trip to Salt Lake thinking about this experience and it's it's unfolding right now in front of me there's this super reality that's beyond this this one-dimensional experience of the right now. But there's a super reality where everything's taking place at the same time. Uh, and it's just this sort of depth, you know, that's like, I don't know where it ends. And you're getting it all fired at. You know, it's like when you're out there in the universe, you know, when the Hubble t telescope takes a picture of something, where is, where are you? You know, where, where, you know, when the Voyager looks back now on this last pictures, uh, and it's, it's out of our solar system, it, has, it can still focus back on the Earth because that's where all the information is going. Here's this tiny blue dot. What does that mean? It's like insignificant. You know, depending on, on where you're at. And so, um, and that's the problem is where's my, where am I at? And I, one of the initial experiences that's going on with several other things is I experience a, a, a firestorm, a, 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 a nuclear holocaust, because I can see the actual shock wave of the wind blowing in this very extreme way, you know, that just blows all the trees over, the shock wave, the heat wave, uh, and it, it's just this horrible nuclear holocaust. It's just, I can't quite, I can feel the pain of the people there, thousands of people dying and screaming. Uh, my vantage point seems to be up from above, like above the avenues or point of the mountain, and I'm, I'm, which is actually, if you go there, is quite a, an incredible view of the Salt Lake Valley. 
that I seem to be in a place like that, and I'm seeing this horrible holocaust happen on, uh, in very vivid detail, detail. I'm feeling that, and it's not, it's not pleasant. And what I get from that, and this is one of many experiences happening at the same time, but what, what, what I get from that is there's no more Salt Lake. The Salt Lake is going to be completely annihilated. There's not going to be anything left. It's ground zero. And that's, and it's horrifying. I mean, I mean it seems, uh, I have enough sense to know uh, that's probably in the future. And then there's this um, almost, it's an unaudible voice, but this, I can hear this saying, uh, you know, Dave, this is the end of the United States. This is the end of an empire. This is the end of an era. Um, everything that you thought was important is going to be erased. And then the question is, is this a metaphor or is this actual? But when this door, this crack in my mind opens up with this memory, this missing two hours of time, that actually becomes, I don't know how long. Because time is insignificant. There's no linear aspect to this. It's so profoundly deep. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure what I'm dealing with here. I'm not sure I have the capacity to to deal with this experience uh, uh, of of super reality. Um, and there's, you know, I, I'm experiencing uh, the the life of natives in these caves, you know, in the Pleistocene era, um, that they're not cave people. They're actually very enlightened people. They're having visions and dreams and they're talking and they're, uh, they're enlightened beings. Where, where did they come from? They seem to be on a much higher level than I'm on. And, I, and I'm looking at that. I'm feeling that. I'm like, well, wait a minute. This is in the seems to be in the Pleistocene, the Ice Age. I thought people were primitive then. I thought people were, um, you know, not as smart as us because we have all this technology, we have science. But it is apparent that this experience, you know, this is one of the many things going on that um, I'm there and, and these are very enlightened people. They have, some, they have some power, some perceptions that are way beyond me. In fact, I get the feeling they're looking at me in this future time and they realize that this this era is coming to an end this is the end of rome but the united states this is the end of my reality this is the end of what i thought everything was right this is the end of things as i know it and and, and then added to that are all these other things going on it seems to just be more than I can take. This huge, vast face comes up on the, on the horizon, you know, uh, full of stars and its blinking eyes. And I can see this distant freight train, this little glowing light way, way out there in the desert coming towards me. And I can feel the earth rumbling. I can feel this this vibration and this is something you get with the at least with me with the ayahuasca the yopo experiences this immense vibration that fills your whole being and um i think for lack of a word the further this door opened up and continues to open up there is a lack of human there is a lack of individuality it's like my the experience is so expansive that it encompasses everything 
And now, you know, that's, that's, I guess people say, well, that's a cop-out. Why don't you tell us the exciting details? I mean, come on, you know, we watch Hollywood movies. There's got to be a payoff here. But I think one of the things that's really apparent is this, this experience I have is it may be involved in a much deeper reality. That this, that this thing that you know, I've talked about, this, this experience I'm having right now, has already began and ended. And that I, I'm sort of seeing, seeing one little piece of the, of the pie, you know, and that this is one experience of thousands of this super reality that involves the known and unknown universe. And I'm, I'm getting, I had that experience. I don't know what, yeah, it's missing two hours of time. But I don't know essentially every everything, or I'm not able to comprehend everything. And this is what I when I start talking about this whole thing, dream, ideas, and um, contemplation, and thoughts you have while you're asleep. That's essentially what that word means. Um, and having these kind of experiences kind of shatters your uh, security of you know what what's out there what you are or what meaning what is the meaning of of life what is the meaning of consciousness it, it sort of lets you know that it's very profound and that's what these tribal people say that's involved in these kiva experiences that are involved in these immense uh rituals and ceremonies that's been going on thousands of years they they tell you that there's this much more expansive reality and i think often religion tries to grab it and say hey we have this set of scriptures and it's all in here those are words that someone else wrote down the direct experience should be should be yours and i think a lot of times it's beyond religion it's beyond science that it's beyond human that and that's why I, I say you know dream within a dream maybe a, maybe a dream is actually what everything is maybe it's extremely important that we have and I'm talking narrative dream. I'm talking substantial I'm not talking like these little repetitious crazy you know uh, surreal uh, symbolic dreams I'm talking like essential realities maybe the dream is 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 is, is all these thousands of windows uh, into this super reality that encompasses everything and I wouldn't expect that science currently can interpret that um, it's just it's on a level uh, that's beyond uh, the materialist viewpoint it's beyond the um, beyond the evidence that we can measure quantitatively that's one of the problems like I mentioned before with with um, the, the theory of chaos and with the so-called quantum, you know, side of, of science. Um, things that we, can't, that we can't really measure that well, that are sort of a lot of times very unpredictable. And, you know, that's the foundation of the Newtonian world, of our reality. And we don't know for sure what the hell's in there. It's just so beyond us. I mean, the more we know, the less we know. And I think I think my experience is on that level and I, I mean and I think I could literally spend hours on that experience and I've mentioned that before that that's one of the things that you're not going to get when you listen to a video I think one of the most interesting experiences of ayahuasca is the the singer sting if you can listen to 
he really relates quite honestly this fantastic experience he had in this chapel or this building where they all took ayahuasca and he does a, a pretty profound job of it most most experiences uh they it's it's wordless it's non-verbal you can't really communicate what's going on and, I, and that may be this experience is in a realm that we're not able to really fully understand right now and it may take a lot of time to get to that point and maybe in this body in this manifestation of a of human we, we we're not getting it and i really believe there's other life forms that do get it and i believe some of those are wild animals and they may be further advanced than us and i believe the plants have the or may be part of our consciousness i mean it's what we eat without plants uh, we can't we can't really survive we have to have you know the stoned ape theory um here's here's homo sapien you know man is evolved from primates and he's walking on the savannah and they start taking these hallucinatory mushrooms and it has an ability to expand consciousness and you become this high thinking entity that over hundreds thousands of years you evolve to have the kind of mind that we have that we think we have i i really believe the animals are quite capable of that and do it all the time i had a dene medicine man that related that we're the only thing the creator made that doesn't we don't follow his law we don't follow the laws of the creator we don't um we we don't follow um the living in balance with the rest of 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 the na- natural world you know, in the indigenous way the earth is divine it's it's perfect as it is with its imperfections nature is incredibly beautiful creation that that's 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 what you have to look at is to look at the face of the creator the consciousness of the creator is in that element this marvelous thing called life and that maybe on some level we're learning uh that we we need this this experience of the body is is incredibly sacred and valuable um that 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 you know do we keep coming back i don't know do we are or do we do we need to to grow and to learn and a part of that is being human and that we may be so much more than being human that we may not even that what we are may not even look human that it might be so beyond us we can't possibly comprehend it and that we use these religions and we use science to to sort of make it understandable the way we are right now we have to have some way to relate it so we you know we have the anthropomorphism i always have a hard time saying that we that we humanize everything but when you have experiences with with the natural world and, and you start to realize just the incredibly in complex nature of life that it's all conscious that, that the, the experience of the wolf the experience of the tree the experience of the fish are are different ways of comprehending being alive and one's not better than the other that we all need each other that possibly as one planet one voice we're moving that's the only way we can move forward when we get stuck in these islands where hey it's me you know looking in the mirror you can look at your own face all day you know and and be so fascinated by 
um, that. But is that really uh, a sickness, a pathology that gets us stuck on, on what maybe ultimately it really is and that it's way beyond us? But that does not belittle the experience of what you're having now. Is it a dream? Is it a computer program? Um, I don't think that's the question. The question is, what are you doing with what you have right now? And you should be focused and concerned with that. And when you're in the other realm, then you should be focused with that and, and getting the full potentiality of, of this experience. Is, is it, we're learning something. That's obvious. Uh, I don't know how many times we have to learn it or how many times it takes to get to a point or, or, or is there a point where you reach that um, you know and some people claim to know that and others don't and I, I, I think it's nonverbal it's not you're not gonna you're not gonna rationalize yourself through this um, and again we get back to this materialist view that the scientist has a, a real problem with consciousness a real problem with uh, the soul uh, you know the, everything's there intact in the body, but it doesn't. It's not breathing anymore. It's, it's dead. But then, it's all an accident anyway. It's meaningless, is it? You you live your life and I live mine. It certainly doesn't seem meaningless. Not not even in the slightest to me. And especially when you start looking at trees and animals and all the beautiful ways that life manifests itself, it's hardly meaningless. That's just a a, a poor, stupid excuse that reduces everything down to uh, accident because you, you have no way to quantitatively measure things that are so far beyond you that it's just confusing you know and it may will it take thousands of years will it take millions of years to finally arrive at this point oh this is what it is this is that super reality this is that experience and can you touch bases with that uh, yes definitely but do you have the ability to comprehend it in this state of mind, in this body? I don't know. Just like my cuckoo clock. <laughs> Be a good way to end is with the cuckoo clock. Um, we have this horrible habit of making ourselves into gods. When, we, when really, when you look at our lives, uh, it's everything but that. In fact, the, pa the pathology of our species is apparent right now. The, the things that we're doing and to our planet and to each other and to other life forms is shocking and that we need to we need to be careful with this this rare event called life this could be the genesis this could be the actual place only place that is happening and it may have the ability to branch out but not if we see only ourselves as the important thing in this what happened to me 30 years ago what was that amazing experience that I had? That experiences that I keep having. Um, do I form a religion? Do I try to say I know it all? Um, no. Um, but I do try to, to understand what happened there. And what it does to me, when I, the more I understand that event and many other events that's happened to me, is it lets me know how sacred this life experience is not just for me and not just for humans but for every single thing that's alive that has this beautiful un incredible power in it calling called consciousness 
and that it is this thing that science is confounded by, completely confounded by consciousness and life. That it, it's a lot more than just an accident. And when you start seeing it as a lot more than just an accident, then it becomes apparent that you have to be more aware, that you have to be free to think and to experience, that the state can't control that, that um, maybe a religion can't control that, or maybe an order, a spiritual order can't control that. It can help you, but ultimately it's, it is, this seems to be this very personal effect that, that opens you up to, to something more than yourself collectively. So, um, okay, that's food for thought and kind of a long food for thought. The, the blood red moons of August. This is In Between Stations Radio. 